Revolution. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try and I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Nick Marks, a man who could teach Pharrell Williams a thing or two about being happy, but maybe not hip-hop, I don't know. Nick is the CEO and founder of Friday Pulse, helping companies understand employee well-being. A leading statistician, TED speaker and happiness expert, Nick is arguably best known for his work in creating the Happy Planet Index, the first global measure of sustainable well-being. He's worked with the British government and the, the Kingdom of Bhutan and has been featured in publications including the Wall Street Journal, The Guardian and Wired. Nick says happiness is a serious business. One of the greatest things about modern society is our increasing acceptance of talking about our emotions. Welcome to the show, Nick. Thanks very much. Lovely intro. Right. Seven quickfire questions, Nick. Mac or PC? Mac. Oxford or Cambridge? Cambridge. UK or US? UK. Powers of two or powers of love? Oh, God, (laughs) who am I? Oh, do I have to choose? (laughs) (laughs) Love. Costa Rica or Costa Coffee? Costa Rica. Mathematics or economics? Economics, that's a hard one. And lastly, ridiculously, don't worry, be happy or shiny, happy people. I think don't worry, be happy. (laughs) I feel like you were stumped on that. Yeah, I think that's, yeah. Uh, the, the two and the love, that's a hard one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I was a boy, I used to climb into my dad's bed and recite powers of two with him. How crazy is that? That's not crazy. You're talking to another numbers numbers man here, so we, we probably have to be careful not to get too hung up in, in, in numbers and stats and maths, but um, but I gladly would. So so anyway, Nick, so what was your first ever job? How did it, how did it all start for you? Uh, my first proper job was after uni when I, I joined Anderson Consulting, which became Accenture. And I discovered quite rapidly, I didn't want to work for a corporate. Uh, but I, I did quite enjoy the job. And, and really arrogantly, I only applied for the job because everyone said to me it was really hard to get. <laughs> so, uh, so I applied for it. So I wasn't really very making very strategic decisions, I think, at that stage of my career. Okay, and what was your first ever job though? That was your first proper job, but it's always interesting to know what what people did prior to the the proper proper careers. Oh well, I typically I worked in a pub, and and I I asked for more hours in my job, and and he said, "Oh yes, I can do. Can you come and clean the men's toilets on Saturday and Sunday mornings?" And that was uh, not the best job I ever had. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you learned something though, no. I, I certainly learned that, yeah, yeah, you did. I learned how to make scruffy brass shine, you know, because he wanted the, the uppipe of the urinal to be shiny and um, and picking out fag butts out of the loo, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> you do, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Um so then so then obviously you went to the management consultancy and, and you claimed I've I've seen that you've claimed that, that was a poor decision as you've just kind of echoed now. What happened after that? Because I, I understand you quit and trained to be a therapist I did I mean sort of these things sort of happen um slightly different times but I I I quit um and I the main thing I really quit to do was to go into uh ethical and environmental research at a at a uh, one of the very early ethical investment companies um so I mean I, I didn't quite quit to do that I quit because they they wanted to move me up to the north of England onto a project, and I'd literally just got engaged uh, to um, what became my first wife because 
<laughs> hasn't lasted the marriage. Well, it did. It lasted 20 years. But but um, but we we um, and so I didn't want to move. I didn't want to move from London, and they wanted to move me up there. So um, I said, you know, no. And then I I started working in a, one of the very first ethical investment companies, and that kind of took me towards the work that I that I eventually did on Happy Planet Index and other things like that. Yeah. So what so what made you specifically look into and research happiness? Well, I started off, I'm, I'm a statistician by trade. That's what I ended up doing my master's in. And then the work I did, a little bit in environmental research and um, and then into um, doing more complicated sort of economic indicators through the 90s. Um, I was doing quality of life indicators, but I, I kind of had these two parallel things going on of training as a therapist. My mother was a family therapist. And so I was sort of kind of interested in her and her way of being. And I was kind of doing sort of encounter groups and things like that. Uh, men's groups particularly I was quite interested in because I didn't really quite know how to be a man in a world I found quite misogynous. And so was thinking about how I do that. And so, and what happened over the years was I moved from quality of life to well-being and experience of life. And that was as much by people challenging me and going, well, Nick, you know about this therapy, you know about this statistics, you know, it's not some way they come together. And and that's sort of how it happened. It was a happenstance, really. And for anyone who's unsure, including me, what are the typical quality of life indicators? How How is that measured? Quality of life indicators are often about standard of living, they're about quality of housing, quality of sort of your local environment. And they tend to be what we would call objective statistics. So things that you can point to, you can touch, they're tangible. And what happened with the transition towards well-being was I started to think about what people experienced, what was the intangibles and how do you put numbers on that? And that was that transition. So when I say quality of life indicators, I'm tending to mean more hard and fast things you count. The, the indicators can become very complex in that you, 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 you have lots of weighting of different variables. I mean, there's something in the UK called the index of multiple deprivation and the multiple deprivation is sort of telling you that it's lots of different things. And, and you get into big issues as a statistician about how you weight different parts of it. And in the end, you kind of realize it's a bit of a nonsense because your decisions about how you weight things in the end shape your curves. So you're not really describing anything real. You're describing your 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 decisions on your weights. Like you are describing something real. But there's and so I started thinking, well, people's experience of life, in a, in a way, they're telling you in their answers what's important to them. So they've included their own weights in the way they do that. And so actually, maybe that's a more interesting way of doing it. And and that's really how my career changed in about the year 2001 when I started doing that. And how, and how did you find that? Because whilst there are um, no doubt other ways of measuring well-being, perhaps not so multidimensional, how do, it must have been quite exciting to create the Happy Planet Index ultimately. It was a very exciting time. And I was working a think tank in London and the director of the think tank, when I when I agreed to join, he said, I want you to drive meaning under the word well-being because the word was coming to the policy arena. And so being a statistician, my instinct was to measure. And so it took me about three or four years. I mean, I, I started off doing sort of one or two days a week at this think tank. I wasn't there full time. It was sort of a Friday job. And I, I just started to develop a methodology I was comfortable with. And of course, I went to academia. I looked what they were doing. But Interestingly, I thought, oh, academia will know how to do this. I'll just have to apply it. But of course, they all disagreed about how you should measure it and what you should do. So we ended up having to create our own frameworks and how we do that and how that's best for policy. So I had an exceptionally exciting decade there. And yes, the Happy Plan Index came in the middle of that. We did after that, we did something called National Accounts of Wellbeing, which was very influential, though not as popular. Uh, Happy Plan, it was very popular. And then, of course, I did my TED talk in, in 2010, which sort of took it to another level. So it was, a, it was a very exciting time. And we had a lot of progress. I mean, we started off working with the Blair government, who was quite interested. Then Cameron came around. Um, Gordon Brown, in between, wasn't very interested in well-being. But Cameron was very interested in well-being. And, of course, he actually set up a national indicators of well-being. We see them sometimes. You might see them in the newspaper. You know, and it says that, you know, this region was the happiest, which um, what would you say the happiest region in the UK is? My guess would be somewhere up north, uh, Yorkshire. It's not a bad guess. I mean, London is the least happy uh, because of income inequality and urbanism and things like that. But it's Northern Ireland 
Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, it's quite rural. Uh, people in Ireland are very positive. Uh, some people um, would suggest too positive sometimes. And of course, they've had recent experience of the troubles. So there's a recent worst past for them to compare to. Oh, and is that, is that presumably that's key because I suppose everything is, is relative. It's, it's somewhat key, yeah. I mean, there, is, there are, I mean, people in sub-Saharan Africa will tend to say they're quite unhappy. Um, so there is absolutely a relation to what your conditions are now. Uh, but of course, how you've experienced the past is going to affect how you experience now as well, yeah. Funnily enough, and I'm going a bit off piece here, but I had a conversation with my uh, one of my brothers who lives in Australia recently about relative happiness. And, and I think my, my comment to him was it's really easy to forget that we are, I'm guessing, I'm just plucking numbers out of thin, thin air here, but we're probably in the top 5-10% in terms of um, our privilege worldwide. But the trouble with being in, in that top elite group is that you bump into people who are maybe in the top 5%. And so that relative happiness or perception of, of success can be hugely skewed by that factor. Am I talking nonsense? No, you're not talking nonsense, but you're underestimating how privileged you are. So if your household income is over £35,000 a year, you're in the top 1% globally. Right. Uh, and then, of course, you're not in the top 1% in the UK. Top, You know... Um, average household income in the UK is about I think 29,000 pounds a year at the moment so you you know you would be in the top you know 30 40 percent if you were there um, but, um so but of course what we tend to do is compare ourselves to our brother-in-laws I always say <laughs> you know <laughs> it's someone quite close yeah the person your sister's married to <laughs> your wife's brother that's the person and and you know and it's it, it, we are competitive and and you know you know I, I was brought up in a in a very middle class you know pretty wealthy bubble and, you know, and actually it's one of the things I love about data is it, 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 it creates, it gets rid of some of my biases and it keeps me on it. Yeah, I suppose it adds the challenge, though, of how you interpret the data, as you kind of alluded to earlier, as to what, you know, what, how weight, uh, data is weighted can affect the, the curve in its in, entirety. Well, it can if you start messing around with indexes, which are multiple dimensions. But if you're looking at data in a clean way, I mean, I always like to have a clean outcome indicator. Um, which, you know, with my current work is about happiness at work and then uh, people's experience of work, really, you know, how happy are you on a week to week basis? And we, we use the word happy to be what people's, whether people's experience is positive or not. Um, but uh, when you have a clear outcome indicator, then you can look at the drivers of that quite cleanly. Then you're looking at the correlation weights or you're looking at, you know, other ways of regression analysis that predicts it or whatever. And that helps you do it much more. The, the problem you get into multidimensional ones is when you go, oh, there's this factor, there's this factor, let's bring them together into one index. And then, then you start getting into a statistical mess, in my opinion. Yes. Yeah, I, I imagine that can quite easily happen too if you try and mix in too many, too many variables and index. What, what are the main drivers of happiness then, Nick? Well, in our, in, in our lives, because I mean, some of our life is work and some of it is not work and, um, and actually you know, you're a parent, aren't you? There's lots of work in parenting that you're just not paid for. So there's all, you know, the stuff we do, isn't there? And um, I mean, some of it is genetic, undeniably, in that, you know, people, some people are born more positive and some people born more negative, always, you know, more uh, propensity to go up and down or or to stay very flat and avoid emotions, which is what some people do. But with it, there's, there's always stuff within our control as well. But, you know, we have to always say that circumstances matter you know, income inequality matters, you know, if we look at it at a population level, but within our own possibilities, uh, we can affect things around us. And the choices we make about how we spend our time are particularly critical. Relationships end up, of course, being the most important thing for our happiness. You know, if we in good relationship with our with our family, with our close friends, then we're going to be happier. But also other things like physical activity, um, you know, um, whether we feel healthy, uh, whether we are healthy, um, whether we feel creative, whether we feel our life is meaningful, purposeful, progressing, these things all matter too. And they and they happen, you made the distinction there between work life and, and non-work life. There's obviously significant advantages to, to measuring happiness. So for an organisation, for example, to measure happiness. Yes, I mean, it's, it's a win-win. In fact, it's a win-win-win really, because whilst we don't necessarily go to work for our happiness to be happy, you know, we tend to think of it as 
things outside of work that make us happy. Actually, we don't go to work to be miserable and, and, um, and quite a lot of people are unhappy at work. So, you know, if, it's going to be a good for us if we're happier at work. If we, and when I say happy, I don't mean we're laughing all the time and we're joyous, you know, like we might have if we're going to, you know, a party or festival or something, you know, there's different types of happiness. And the work type of happiness is a more serious type. It's a more learning, development, accomplishment type of happiness, yeah? Uh, but it is getting on with our colleagues and there can be times for laughter and enjoyment at work. Of course there can be. But, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a more focused, uh, focused way of being. Um, so it's in our own interest, but it's in the interest of the organisation because, you know, when people feel good at work, they do better work. And so enlightened organisations will recognise that if they create jobs and roles for people that people can enjoy, good work will flow out of it. And in that way, it's, I, I distinguish it from engagement because engagement is very popular amongst organisations. They say we want staff engagement. And of course they do because it's a code word for productivity. It's like, how much, how can we get more out of you and pay you the same? It's not really, <laughs> it's not really a fair bargain, you know, whereas, you know, if, if they, if they, so it doesn't really land on the employee fantastically. And, and also the problem with engagement is if I ask someone, how engaged are you at work? They've actually got no idea how to answer that question. You know, it, it, they can probably say if they're disengaged, uh, like you can, it's very hard to say is something meaningful, you know, what, what's the top of that scale? I don't know, you know, uh, you know, whereas happiness, we can kind of go, yeah, I'm happy. There's sort of a sense of enough in our understanding of what makes us feel good. Whereas meaning and engagement, there's no sense of enough. And so therefore you can't measure it. It's difficult to, difficult to know exactly what we mean about it. So I think the enlightened organization should be thinking about um, employee well-being, if you want to call it that, team morale, you can call it that if you want to. And the way that we measure that is we ask people, how happy were you at work this week? Yeah, you're right. I never really thought about that. But happiness certainly seems a lot more familiar as a measure, doesn't it? So much more instinctive. Yeah, I mean, you can ask, you can ask a truck driver, you can ask a CEO, you know, how have you felt this week? I'm happy to very happy, and they can both answer you it. So it's 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 a language that everyone can relate to. So if you want to create a common goal across an organisation and one that's in everyone's self interest, it's a lot more realistic to do it around um, happiness and good experience. You know, you can call it employee experience if you want to. Having great experience, that's fine with me. Um, you know, happiness is a little more inspirational but some people then get a bit worried it's a bit fluffy and you know so they can misinterpret or not misinterpret place another interpretation on the word than i mean yeah absolutely that makes sense and presumably there's many things which affect happiness in the workplace so uh, both mental and physical so like even the physical environment itself will affect happiness to some extent for sure you know and and, um yeah there there are lots of impacts um on it but quite a lot of them are controllable by the organization or by the team or by the individual and you know and again they it mainly it mainly i mean the physical environment does affect people's happiness and well-being but not quite as much as all sorts of office designers will tell you it does um you know that's the most important thing and and it is important for people to have spaces they can move around in you know and you know and and i think we we now all know the evidence much more that people should get up and move around every hour not sit down too long and that it's good to, you know, we can't, we can't concentrate that long anyway. So break it up and, you know, go and get a cup of tea, coffee, water cooler, whatever it is, go for a stretch. You know, I used to say that the, the, the smokers were doing something very healthy when they went for a cigarette break, <laughs> you know, they get up from their work, they, they go outside. That's good. Yeah. Mm. Often with someone else to talk to, or even if they're on their own, they're kind of meditating. Yeah. They detach from work. Yeah, they detach from work and they sit there and they draw in on their cigarette and there's that concentration on the in-breath and the out-breath. And I, I think it's, that's why the habit of it, I think, is very uh, addictive because it is, in a way, mindfulness. Um, it's just not a very healthy way of doing mindfulness. But um, And they take their statutory breaks, you know, and they, 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 they break and that's actually very good for you. So in some ways, we should follow the lead of smokers. I, I've never smoked, so it's not my, my buzz, but... We should follow their lead and take our breaks and and uh, break up our days. Yeah, it's a shame there isn't more of a more of a norm 
a social norm to to doing that type of having that type of break without the cigarette. I know Rory Sutherland talks about if you're at a dinner party and you stare out of the window smoking a cigarette, you're a you're a philosopher. But if you do it without a cigarette, you're a fucking weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> Funny Rory Sutherland, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, he's cool. I, I once spoke to him because uh, I, I I went to a TEDx talk by him before I did my TED talk, and I said to him, "Can I have a chat with you?" Because I'm I'm booked to do one, and and so we we met and talked. Um, so this is well over ten years ago, and he was very kind and supportive and uh, and helpful. Yeah, yeah, no, he's very kind. He's very helpful. He's he's he's. Uh past guest of ours and, and listeners to the show know that I wax lyrical about Rory in most episodes. So I'll, I'll try and refrain, but, um, you know, very it's, it's, yeah, he's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Very articulate. Yeah. So you, I used a quote of yours in, in your intro and I, I, when you mentioned about how there is an increase in acceptance to, to talk about emotions, which, which I think is certainly true. Has that led to workplaces and organizations taking it, more seriously as well at the same time yeah for certain I mean I think that they they talk about it in different ways but I mean I think people's mental health is becoming much less stigmatized and and that has to be a good because if people feel more comfortable with who they are uh, and all of us have our challenges and imperfections then they actually can feel more confident and uh, you know and, and do better at work so it's no good sort of not talking about these things. It's always better to talk about them. And I think there's a there's always been a recognition that sort of stress is not great. A lot of organizations take advantage of people and uh in the sense that they they overwork them and we get problems of burnout and issues like that. So I, I think these things are all becoming talked about more and that's very helpful. There's still difficulty. I mean, I I'm absolutely our fellow human beings who are of the different gender than you and me will have always say that they have to sort of put on more armor to go to work and they have to you know they have to really work hard not to be seen as emotional uh in order to succeed at work whereas a man starts being emotional it's sort of like oh he's you know he's good like a man has a picture of his his children on his desk uh then it's you know that's who he's working for if a woman does it's like that's her distraction and so there's this unevenness about how we treat genders with emotions and i think that everybody could grow up and understand that you know we're all emotional beings and um we take our emotions to work and actually our emotions i mean are exceptionally functional for us um i mean that just as human beings you know in our evolutionary history our feelings and our emotions have helped us survive and thrive and so of course they're in the workplace so it's, it's a weird thing that is sort of we shouldn't feel at work we shouldn't have emotions we should just be rational and cognitive i mean you actually become a psychopath if you've got no emotion it's highly dysfunctional to have no emotional experience and so and actually emotions are what motivates us there's a there's a neuroscientist i really like called antonio damasio i don't know if you know his work no um he's written a lot of good books called um self comes to mind the feeling of what uh happens and then recently slightly oddly named but it's called the strange order of things but what he's talking about is that in our evolutionary history emotions and feelings came before cognition um, which makes perfect sense you know uh, central nervous systems came quite late in evolution but feelings really, really are a sort of stimulus response mechanism uh, and um, and what he says is feelings have three purposes that they help us monitor our environment they help motivate us to act and they help us adjust our actions when we're out in the real world. And so these are highly functional things. You know, we feel something before we actually really understand it cognitively. Um, so the feeling is there first. And of course, that motivates us to act at the most simple level. It's an approach avoid signal. So you meet somebody new um, at a party. Do you remember parties? <laughs> vaguely, vaguely. vaguely. <laughs> you, know, you meet somebody new and... And it, and you immediately get a sort of friend or foe signal, you know, do you like them? Do you not? Yeah. And, and that's part of our evolutionary history and that's an approach avoid signal. And that actually is translated into all of our emotional uh, interactions, you know, and it, they become much more nuanced and sophisticated, but we, we have negative emotions, so-called negative emotions, which are basically about what we need to avoid of things like, you know, anger and fear, which are part of the fight and flight mechanism. 
and they're helping us avoid threats. So in, in, in the COVID world that we live in, certainly a few weeks ago, the whole world was incredibly anxious uh, and frightened. And we were trying to, and we still are, we're trying to avoid the virus. We're trying to run away from it or freeze and sort of stay at home and hope it does go find somebody else or doesn't, you know, and we, and these are, these are functional responses, but they're very difficult against something like a silent virus, but, you know, but um, so, so they, it helps us, it helps us move into more functional behavior, but of course, anxiety which is it's sort of the cousin of fear and more pervasive becomes dysfunctional in itself because we're actually led to behaviors which aren't helping us in some ways so there's these different things that go on with our emotions but they're trying to help us survive in the world and the the positive emotions of which happiness is kind of a catch-all word for but they vary massively in their energy and their purpose from you know very low energy emotions like contentment through to high energy ones like joy or enthusiasm where we're bursting with energy, you know, and, um, and, and through many others, but basically as a, as a sort of rule of thumb, the positive emotions are helping us thrive. They're helping us create and seize opportunities. So the negative ones are helping us deal with threats and the positive ones are doing that. And in our businesses, we need to deal with threats, but we need to create and seize opportunities. So they're, they're highly functional. And what tools what tools are available to businesses then to, to measure that and get a better understanding of their of their workforce? I've created this organization, this, this product called Friday Pulse. And, and and what we do is we try and capture that very simple good bad signal, you know, so like the friend though, by asking people, you know, how have you felt this work week? Uh, from very unhappy to very happy. Uh, and that is trying to say, have they had a good week or not? And that provides, you know, um, both teen and senior leaders with a sort of overview as a sort of good, bad signal going on in the organization instantly. And because we do it every week, you get a time trend on it. And I, there are people who try and measure beyond that. And they'll say, are you excited? Are you uh, anxious? Are you whatever? And I'm not convinced you get much extra useful data that way. So I have tried in the evolution of products to ask people, you know, how happy were you? Um, how much have you progressed your work or sometimes how interested was your work or how much stressed you were or frustrated? They use a positive and negative emotion around it. And then when I put those into my regression analysis and try and predict what's happening. So if I'm maybe measuring a company for a year and I've got a particular company I'm thinking of now, we were just measuring them monthly, but, you know, I've got 12 data points and, well, who's still in the company at the end of the year? Who's left? Who hasn't? And so you're trying to predict, you're trying to say, how much does happiness predict staff turnover? Then I, the happiness variable explains most of the variance that I can explain. If I add the stress in or the interest in, doesn't add much extra, very, very little. Maybe I get 60% of the variance uh, with the first variable, another two or three with the second two. So I'm basically not getting extra information. So why ask the question? Why ask three questions when you can do it at one? And what that basically means is that if someone was stressed, they'd be telling me they're unhappy as well. If they were interested and loved their job, they'd be telling me they were happy. So basically the happiness one gets the sort of negative stress and the positive side. It's a sort of minus two to plus two variable rather than a minus two to zero, zero variable. And, and so you're better off just asking that simple question. And then, the way that we deal with it, we then go into like asking people specific questions around them, like what's what's been a success for you this week? What's a frustration? But let people use text and qualitative ways of describing that, because I'm not convinced that quant does that very well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And do you find that the so your example there of turnover of staff and whether that's um, or how related to happiness measure that is? Do you do you see consistencies across industries and sectors or, or does it vary per? per business type well every industry has a positive correlation between happiness and um staff retention but they vary um, if you're in a high turnover business such as hospitality which has got you know traditionally higher um particularly i mean something like a coffee shop chain which is not people's aspiration to work in a coffee shop or most people if you're inside the m25 in london staff turnover and those is probably above 100% a year, then the reasons you leave are not so much about your experience. You never went into that job expecting a great experience. So the effect sizes are smaller um, and they're smaller in manufacturing than they are in creative industries, for example. 
So we see differences across, but they're all positively correlated. And we see the same with productivity. We see the same with creativity and innovation. You know, there are differences across industries or, or even, you know, actually you can say something broad like creative industries and not every job in the creative industries is creative. Some of them are very uncreative and there's lots of creative roles in non-creative industries because you have to think on your feet you have to be intuitive you have to be responsive these are things that require immediate decision making and you know in in with imperfect information so you you're creative in that way yeah um so but creativity is massively related to how happy you feel actually you know you're not creative when you're miserable and are you able to share any particular information or examples of when someone um so a client of yours perhaps has used friday pulse and used it for you know very good purposes and actually managed to anticipate something in specific that they've that they've then turned around or improved yes i mean our clients use friday pulse so we we've we've been working with clients with friday pulse for about two years we're actually we're only just coming to the market with the product fully before covid hit which is an interesting story but um so the ones that have been using it for a long time are using it as a way of uh keeping engaged with their employees uh, about how they're feeling and how they're doing and organizations that are in rapid change either rapid often rapid expansion uh some of our clients you know it's about how do you keep control of the culture as you as you change so much and you bring in new people that you don't know so well and things like that so they 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 i think they, what they found is that employees are much more bought into the company uh, if when they feel like they're taken care of, when they feel like they're supported. Uh, so it, in that sense, we haven't had a client that's sort of absolutely done an experiment to say, all oh, right, we're going to make people happier and, and, and follow it like this. But I do know from our data that, you know, when we follow clients for a long time, that teams that are unhappy have higher staff turnover than the ones that are happy. And they take notice of that because obviously that's they can see that as cash. I know that employees that are happier are getting better appraisal grade when they've shared those with us um, quite significantly. And we, I don't have hard data on um, things like creativity and innovation because they're quite hard to measure those things. But um, you know, certainly from stories they tell us, they you know they they they, they recognise the ability to be flexible, adaptive and innovative in teams that are, or divisions that are happier. You mentioned, obviously, the current um, pandemic and, and COVID specifically. Can you offer any advice or tips to those of us, um, myself included, who are finding it quite challenging at the moment, especially not only working remotely myself, but managing a team who are equally working remotely? You know, good team leadership has sort of just got amplified in the sense that I think we have to be more intentional as leaders than ever, because there are all sorts of ways that when we were in a office together, we could sort of lead by presence and, you know, example or, um, or just picking up in, you know, you, you know, I look across and I might see that, you know, one of my colleagues, Clive looked, his shoulders looked hunched today and you could just see he wasn't happy and you go and have a chat with him. Yeah. You can't see any of that online. So you have to you have to be more intentional and reach out and ask people more. So I think that the people side of team leadership has probably gone from ten to twenty five percent of people's jobs, uh, and 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 that's just kind of what we need to do is is be much more in touch with people, much more sensitive, much more empathetic. But then there, there are very practical things. I don't know. I mean, have you tried to do you know sort of creative collaborative brainstorming recently? in the last few weeks or or have you not needed to um loosely i mean i mean not directly probably indirectly that's happened but only during a uh, like a group work in progress type meeting zoom chat it's quite it, it, i think it's more difficult than to do in a room and so i at the moment so we're now about eight weeks into lockdown in the uk as we record this and i think quite a lot of us are sort of running on the stock of goodwill we had from before this started you know, in that I know my team well and we get on well. Um, and so we're able to function as we move forward at the moment uh, pretty well. Um, but, you know, there'd be teams that didn't get on so well. I'd imagine they're hiding from each other now. You know, if you had a boss you didn't like, working from home is great. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you can hide. You know? And, and you, it's quite rational to hide, if you, you know. But, um, 
but you know it will make that more difficult we're not hiding from each other but I, one thing i've really noticed is i don't think the big zooms work very well in a collaborative way no. i think that i think that um, and i actually think there's a psychological reason for this which is that there's, there's something called uh, mentalizing have you ever heard of that well funny enough we actually have a question from one of our listeners about uh, zoom fatigue coming up um oh. but uh, no i i have only because i've researched into this question because a couple of people i know including i don't know if you know faris and rosie they they've shared something recently about zoom uh zoom fatigue but i have my own personal issues with zoom but i think it's more of a unique psychological flaw that i have that if i'm watching or looking at someone on a screen my brain thinks i'm watching telly and everything inside my brain shuts down and expects to be entertained <laughs> oh that's quite interesting i mean that's that's quite a logical process to think about it because i mean there's a sort of weird thing with zoom you know and and and, and other video platforms exist um you know um, quite a, quite a lot of people use teams don't they um it gives you a flavor of being in physical contact with people, but doesn't quite satisfy it. And so it's sort of got a pseudoness to it. And, and there's the whole eye contact thing. You know, we, we, we don't look directly into the camera. We look at the person on the screen. So we're not making eye contact. And so the loss of sort of um, engagement in that way, or, you know, um, contact in that way. But, um, but my thing is about limiting it to four people. And, the the idea of mentalizing is that it's a it's a pre-empathy step which is we put ourselves in the other person's mind literally and we learn we're two or three years old and, and but actually we can only cope with about three other minds um at any one time and it's why when we were in a conversation in the old world where we could gather and if there were three or four of us having a chat if a fifth person came tends to quickly split into two chats a two and a three and i think that goes on in zoom very much so that if there's more than four or five people on the Zoom, that people just start doing an email on the side or start doing that. They can't attend. So if you're going to brainstorm and collaborate, I think you should keep it to like four or under. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. I've also heard someone someone say that it's not it's not common to look at yourself whilst you're talking to other people. I think that can be quite a distraction as well. Well, maybe some more vain folk amongst us are, but but it's quite an unusual thing to see yourself. Yeah, but who isn't vain? You know, it's uh, who isn't narcissistic to an extent, you know? It's... Oh, no, I agree. I, my, my point there was that people who don't normally look at themselves while they talk. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I mean, they, they put mirrors by lifts because it makes people not worry about waiting for the lift because uh, they can look at themselves. Um, so... So, uh, and I think actually men probably do it more than women, actually. Men probably look at themselves and think, oh, I look okay. And women tend to be more self-critical about how they feel. So it, it might be that there's a, there's a gender difference in how we experience Zoom, actually. I hadn't really thought about that. I would think that's quite a possibility. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's, um, that's a good one. Well, I feel now would be a great uh, bridge and a great time to go into our listener questions. Okay. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. But we've got two to put to you, Nick. So um, we'll start with the Zoom one and then we can wrap that one up. So um, Lisa says, I'm suffering a bit from Zoom fatigue, using it for both work and with my friends, girlfriend and some of my family. I understand the need to connect with others to maintain well-being while we're social distancing. But why do I find it so tiring and unbearable? So I suppose we've just covered most of that. But is there anything else that we can add? No, I think I think we're we're all tired, aren't we? You know, with the with the changes to our lives, and I'm kind of a bit of an extrovert, and so I get energy from other people. Um, I mean, luckily I do live with my wife, and I like her, so that's good. Yeah, um, <laughs> so, um, and she likes me, so it's all good. That, but um, but I I think it's just tiring, and and I think it is this for me. It's this pseudo satisfaction. It's sort of promising connection doesn't quite deliver and so we're getting a bit confused in how we are but it could also be like you're saying that we, we're conditioned to thinking about that tv and you know we tend to get more passive in tv what um i think it's a big combination of stuff but everybody is saying that and of course the only answer is to is to do less of it and to and and you know maybe switch your screen off sometimes um so yeah yeah okay uh, our second question from katie <laughs> i like this one so it says um 
I read somewhere that you think South Americans are the happiest people on the planet. What do you think are the main reasons for this? And could we give the Russians something of what they're having? <laughs> Actually, that's brilliant that she said Russians there at the end. So they're not quite the happiest, but they nearly are. And, and, and what they particularly are is they're much happier than you'd expect for their levels of GDP per capita. So you know, uh, it, it's, it's a fallacy to think that richer companies, countries aren't happier. They are broadly. And, and Scandinavia typically comes out top of any happiness index, uh, moved around between them. And the main reason for that is that um, it's about income inequality, which is that they have better safety nets. And what that means is that the sort of poorest 25% of the population are much less miserable than they are, say, in the UK or the USA, where there's bigger income inequality. So the big difference in rich countries is income inequality. But then you get Latin America. And Latin America GDP per capita is broadly similar to Central Eastern Europe and out to Russia. Uh, Life expectancy is broadly similar uh, between the two of them. Happiness is very, very different. Much, much happier in Latin America than they are in Central Eastern Europe. And, And why is that? And it's predominantly a sense of community, a sense of family, uh, you know, the, Latin America has very strong family systems, very strong communities, very st- strong sense of place. They're very vibrant. You know, we, you know, we think of them as, as, as very emotionally lively. Yeah. Uh, whereas the Slavs and the, and the Russians and everything are uh, much more, much more um, uh, placid or, 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 you know, and, and, and that uh, more pessimistic, the Latin Americans are more optimistic. So there is this big and mainly can be explained by participation in social activities, social systems. Uh, that, that and, and of course, in, in Central Eastern Europe, and let's remember, you know, they've had a very difficult hundred years. Uh, their villages and their communities were systematically broken up, uh, you know, whether that was, you know, through the wars, you know, through the, the whole experience that sort of Jewish communities and other minorities experienced through their through in the post-war level where people moved to the cities and to industrial farms and off the land. And, you know, so they've had masses and masses of interventions which have systematically broken down those community relationships. So it, it, it's, it's probably not, it, there might be some genetic part of it, but it's, I think it's a lot environmental about, you know, they've had, they've had a difficult hundred years. Mm. Do you think then with, with that in mind, we're likely to see a, 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 an uplift post covid post coronavirus in the uk i don't know basically i think that we've got we've got different factors at work haven't we in the sense that we've got you know we're going to have a massive recession we've got massive unemployment uh and so if we think of this as as like a sort of a trauma then what we find with individuals is that some people have post-traumatic stress and some people have post-traumatic growth. And I think we'll probably have some sections of the population that come out of COVID having reassessed their lives, reassessed their priorities, and have a period of personal growth or family growth or change of career, acceptance of perhaps lower income, but for more freedom or more, more, more downtime. I mean, um, and some people will be will have very very difficult circumstances where they're you know on an, uh, you know on universal credit unemployment benefit and they're really really struggling to make ends meet and I think there'd be a big variety I I think it would be very difficult to know um, which ones will win out there will be winners and losers probably yeah that makes sense fantastic okay so Nick the final part of our interview is our four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests um, starting with what advice would you give to your younger self? I, I am an overly optimistic person. And that gets me into problems in that I can override negative signals and red flags. And where, <laughs> where I've crashed and burned in life, which I have done a few times, it's through not listening to negative feedback. So I think, I mean, I actually quite like where I am now. So I don't really want to change my past. But I think the wiser thing would have been to have noticed things a bit earlier and not kept on thinking I could fix them. They would work out if only I carried on like this, because in the end they didn't. And, you know, so I, I think that's probably a sort of advice, but I, I'd like to, if I'm really giving my younger self free, I'd like to have been a little, I'd like to be 
a little less serious. I was quite a serious young man and uh, I'm more playful now. Yeah, good. Well, that former point you make, I, I um, uh, there's slight parallels anyway with, with my point, which is I, I always think personally, I learn more by failing. I'm a big fan of making mistakes as long as they're not, you know, life threatening. So um, rushing in and trying to fix things and then learning that you couldn't fix them. I'm sure there's there's huge benefits from that. I think a learning mindset is a very good thing to have. <laughs> and, and then, and, you know, and how much, you know, how, I mean, how how much pain do we want to have? I mean, a Chinese therapist, everyone said no pain, no gain. I don't think anyone really approaches pain, you know, relishing it. I don't know. Some some crazy triathletes might do, but um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Funny enough, I know a crazy triathlete and he was um, he was telling me a story about someone he was running alongside who kept saying, pain entering my body is weakness leaving my body or something like that. And he replied, no, no, pain entering your body is injury entering your body. And he was trying to convince this guy to stop running because he was in a bit of a mess. But yeah, I suppose we're all made differently. Yeah. Um, question two, Nick, is if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? Um, the annual staff survey. I think they're not, you know, they, they, their data's out of date, you know, as soon as it's analysed and they, they're just one snapshot that's, you know, and I, I think they give a false sense of a box ticked in people and HR departments. And, and I don't think they provide useful, very useful data. And, and I think instead you should be measuring much more lightly, much more often to keep, you know, the finger on the pulse of the organization, which of course is why we're called Friday Pulse. But yeah, I really hate the annual half start. I think that no one approaches filling them out with joy. <laughs> And uh, and I don't think they I don't think they 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 help very much. Well, Rory would talk about signalling probably attached to that, and if you're only doing it once a year, it's probably signalling that as an as an organisation you don't really give a shit what they what they answer. Yeah, yeah. Whereas if you ask every week, how do you feel? People feel taken care of, and that's actually part of the intervention. Yeah, makes sense. Number three, any books that you can recommend to our listeners, Nick? Well, I mean, I I have a. <laughs> particular likes of books i mean um i'm quite enjoying i quite enjoy sort of older guys and i'm going to say guy because i'm i'm a guy so i i, I look, quite look to older men sort of writing a bit reflectively so i'm actually reading charles handy who's a management thinker's 21 lessons on life and i quite like that sort of reflective you know he must be mid-80s now he's written them as letters to his grandchildren i think that's quite nice um uh i i like in a similar way i like um uh, irving yalom who's a psycho existential psychotherapist writing about his life he wrote one called becoming me i think it's called and it's a personal reflection he wrote something called love's executioner uh which is a very famous uh psychotherapy book so i like that sort of you know I, i'm an aristotle in, in in the sense that aristotle says that the life well lived you'll know on your deathbed sort of thing almost and I think looking back and I, I in that way I'm quite looking forward to getting old I hope I don't just die suddenly one day and don't get the time to sort of have a couple of years where I know I'm dying and thinking about it I quite like that I think yeah <laughs> yeah that's fine There's nothing wrong with that do you read any fiction in just out of curiosity I do. I haven't read much recently because I've kind of been busy with work. But yeah, I do have favourite pieces of fiction. You know, I mean, I think my all-time favourite would be Shantarama. Have you ever read that? No, no, I haven't. It's about a, a crazy Australian in India and um, uh, all of his experiences, which are quite wild. Um, and yeah, I really like that. And I love Cloud Atlas. Yeah, and I yeah, I don't know. I, I do I do read fiction, but not much the last year or two actually should read more i ask mostly because i i don't i um i wish i i wish i did i think i'm wrong but i i, I find that i i always want to read stuff that's related to work or something i'm interested in in a more practical way and i, and I know that's the wrong stance but i'm always interested as to it's not wrong it's not wrong in the sense that you know yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't be too hard on yourself i think people are allowed to to not like fiction and you might get it through movies you know you might have it get it a different way yeah okay well i can live with that <laughs> so nick uh the last one is that we, we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honor to our guest who has to give their reason why so would you 
would you kindly dedicate this episode to somebody? Wow. God, that's quite a big question, isn't it? Well, I mean, God, who, who do I dedicate it to? I, I had one of my great mentors uh, die last year. He was, it was his time. He was 86. And he's a Chilean economist called Manfred Max Neef. And he was known in his career as a barefoot economist. Um, and he was very much, his economics was very much about the human scale and how economics has become uh, very macro and, and removed itself from, the, from day-to-day life. And so I will dedicate this episode to one of my intellectual heroes, um, Manfred Max Neef. Fantastic. Well, this, this episode is very proudly dedicated to Manfred Max Neef. Thank you. Can I say one last thing? Yes, please do. Yeah, so Friday Pulse is, uh, is free to any organisation up to 1,000 people during the crisis. Um, and it measures and improves employee experience. And if people want to come and try it, then go to the website and find out. Oh, fantastic. Well, you can share a few more um, links, if you will. So my final call to action, everyone can head over to this episode's listing on calltoaction.co. We'll share links to all of the books to Friday Pulse. How else can our listeners get more Nick Marks? Oh, so I, I'm the only social media platform I'm really active on is LinkedIn. So just send me an invite and um, and I accept them and, and, and like to chat on LinkedIn. And I do tend to post at least every other week. I try and do every week. I try and post an article. Um, and um, I have my own personal website, which is nickmarksnok.org, where I post them to. Um, that's where you can really find me. But yeah, fridaypulse.com is the is the um, web, website of the of the platform and business. Perfect. Well, well, we'll add all of those to this listing too. Thank you so much for joining us, Nick. It's been, it's been a real pleasure and a, and a real privilege to talk. Thanks so much indeed, Giles. Uh, thank you to everyone listening if you've enjoyed this episode please do share it and review the pod we really value your support keep the questions and guest requests coming in to get in touch it's easy to find gasp online you can check out cta pod on instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co Yeah, hey, hey.